0: You're listening to The Good GP, the podcast for busy
1: GPs.
0: Hello and welcome to another episode of The Good GP, the educational podcast for busy GPs. My name's Christina and I'm once again joined today by Francis Mulcahy to discuss welcoming the gender diverse community into our practices. Now, Fran, you joined me for our last episode where we took a bit of a deep dive into how someone from the gender diverse community may present to us. And we chatted a bit about the importance of getting terminology right, especially around pronouns. Today, I wanted to start off by talking to you a bit more around what we can do in our practices to welcome the gender diverse community.
1: Really simple things, making sure that your medical software Allows for clear pronouns. Just a little sign on the wall saying we respect your pronouns. Some of having even a tiny piece of the community's iconography, whether it be a, a transgender flag, or the more recent pride flags aren't a straightforward rainbow anymore. They've got a they've got the transgender colours wedged into the left-hand edge. Uh, So they're called progress pride flags. And the transgender community would see that as a very happy sign that the environment is sensitive to gender diversity. The the pride flags, the, the rainbow iconography, isn't necessarily experienced by the transgender community as being inclusive but a little just a little bit of iconography can make a big difference Mm. and I think probably pronouns more than anything else in terms of knowing that it's safe to be different.
0: Okay, so friend, they are some really helpful and practical tips. Now, I also wanted to talk around some of the myths, I guess, in the gender medicine space. And firstly, I wanted to touch on the idea of gender awareness being a phase. I I especially think of this in the pediatric and adolescent space, but I'm sure it happens across the lifespan where someone might disclose their gender awareness to a GP, only to be told that. You know, this is likely a phase, and I guess as the GP, you know, maybe not wanting to commit someone down a certain path or into a certain journey. So as a result, they kind of almost get dismissed. I wonder what your thoughts around this
1: are. Let's make a distinction for human beings that are uh, peri-adolescent or pre-adolescent. It's a very complex assessment process, and it is best done by one of the large team-based structures that focus on this because they don't rush at anything mm. and they give lots and lots of opportunity for the children or the adolescents and their families to come to grips with what is happening. The I would point out to people very strongly that the regret rate for people who have had medical or surgical interventions to align with their gender experience. The regret rate is something in the order of 1 in 5,000. It's really, really low. There are probably 3 or 4 really, really, really noisy, upset people who Mm. wanted to detransition And they're all over the internet. But that's because they're noisy, not because there's a vast number of them and we're seeing the tip of the iceberg. Mm. Just a little bit of referencing. In Holland, almost all of the gender work is done by a single clinic that is government run and free. So they have a very big capture rate for the population within Holland. Certainly there are are Dutch people who go elsewhere in Europe for, for care, but... They've got very good stats on incidents and on the effect on mental health and general well-being of engaging with the medical system. So I can state with quite a deal of confidence that detransitioning regret does occur and it's really, really rare. If we look at the adult population and if you're a cisgendered man and you're sitting listening to this, the trans woman in front of you has actively wanted to either not have testicles or to not have testosterone. Now, you think about it from your own perspective. That's not something that you would do on a whim. And similarly, if you're a cisgendered woman GP, you're not likely to say, oh, um, I'll just dispense with my breasts surgically as a phase I'm going through. I cannot emphasise enough that this group of patients without support have a suicide rate of 10 to 20 times at any cohort group. And as a group, I get into trouble amongst my community for saying this, as a group, we, I'm including myself, we tend to be very broken and how could we not be so the whole of my life everything around me said you've got male genitalia you must be a man so um, my whole life I had an abjectly poor relationship with myself I felt I was a liar, I didn't understand why I felt that, I felt I was wrong I wasn't acceptable, not not a good way to live a life. And when I finally worked out what I was, I couldn't give myself permission to say I was a woman. All I could give myself permission was to say I'm not a man. And when that was clear in my head, I was really survival stuff it was either i live authentically or i don't live so nothing fails about that my first interaction with the healthcare system was with my gp i presented mask i had disclosed my gender to my female partner and her initial response was to be ashamed which was very upsetting she asked me if I could just wear ladies' clothes inside the house, which I think sort of indicated that she missed the point somewhat or, or I hadn't communicated with well or something. I agreed to present mask outside the house for a number of weeks while she educated her family. And that seemed a, it was a difficult compromise for me, but it seemed a reasonable compromise. So I presented to my GP in normal mask form and announced to him that, I was my gender awareness had settled. And I'm a woman, and that um, next time he sees me, I'll be presenting femme And you now this is a I'm a GP, mm. so my own GP and I have a fairly collegial relationship. This is this is not a, the, the usual power dynamic. He looked at his desk when I said all this and said, "I can't treat you." I was a bit gobsmacked. And then he said, I can't treat you as my religion. So his conduct was completely unprofessional. There was no offer of seeing an alternative. There was no offer to provide a reference to someone who was skilled and empathetic to the area. My experience was to feel (laughs) thoroughly wretched. So it's, it's not just about believing that you have the skills to help. You don't have to have the skills to help, but what you will be actively doing harm if you're not able to acknowledge the reality of the position that person is in. And we're talking about something that's as fundamental as race to the experience of self. And I think the only other situation which I can see parallels in is an Indigenous Australian who has got a ginger beard. There's plenty of them. And, and they get the too white or too ginger mm. to be digi, and that's clearly offensively destructive.
0: Mm.
1: And when I first came out, I have clearly had too much After Five shadow to be the lady wearing the nice pearls. Yeah, so it's just... And as a, a group of people who are really, really sensitive... <laughs> If to gender, they're going to pick. They'll pick up the. They'll pick up the subtle interpersonal's from their GPs. I can speak. I can't speak for the community about many things because it's such individual experiences. But I, I can say almost uniformly, if they don't expect doctors to know much about their gender identity and the medical elements of it. And they will just be thrilled to the back teeth if doctors ask them what suits them now please 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 doctors do not ask your gender diverse patient to educate you the last time you said to a diabetic can you please tell me a bit about this diabetes thing it doesn't instill much confidence no (laughs) no. so you don't ask you don't ask minority groups yeah to educate you about your privilege But it's fine to say, I know very little about this, but I know people who do. Or I will find out.
0: And I will educate myself. Yes, (laughs) and I will educate myself. But preferably, I mean, and I think something that I would like for GPs to be able to take away is to not wait for that patient to come to you before you start educating yourself. No. Um, You know, to try and take some steps at least to to have an understanding before that even
1: happens. So be a bit prepared Mm -hmm. when your 45-year-old trans man comes to see you and they've got deep Mm dyspareunia, then you've got to have a plan. How am I going to communicate about this person's anatomy? Um, when they say it hurts to have receptive sex, they're talking about anal sex or vaginal sex. Do they still have a vagina? Uh, OK. And the simple hint is ask, we're talking about your reproductive system, we're talking about sexual function. Is there language that distresses you? Is there language that you like to use? And people who have been in transition tend on the whole to be fairly well-educated, often self-educated and sometimes by Dr. No Fact Google, but Mm -hmm. still, and they will just be delighted that you've asked them what is comfortable for them in terms of language,
0: I think that's actually a really important overarching message throughout our discussion. Just ask. Fran, thank you for joining me today. Thank you for educating us, but also for sharing some of your own story and your own journey. It has, I think, been a really enriching addition to our discussion. Now, Fran, you have mentioned that you may come back and chat with The Good GP in the future. So I would like to encourage our GP listeners that if you have any questions around gender medicine that you'd like us to address in the future, please drop us a line at thegoodgp@gmail.com. at gmail.com.